0: And welcome to this week's edition of Family Stories, the podcast written by you, our listeners. This week's Family Stories come from far and wide, an international edition from Australia, South Africa and Germany, from the desert to the Balkans, to the Atlantic and Scandinavia, and back to Blighty. But we begin with an extraordinary story of a young Oxfordshire woman who saw Hitler speak. This story comes from Rob Dolby. Hello, we have ways. I've been a fan of the pod since near the beginning and an independent company member since day one. You've been a boon to my sanity levels for the last year. My story concerns my grandma Joyce's attendance at a Nazi party rally in 1936, where she saw Hitler speak and the ripples from that trip to Germany, which lasted the rest of her life. Born in 1919, Joyce grew up in Oxford, meeting her future husband, my granddad Aubrey, at primary school. Aubrey and Joyce's was a lifelong romance, but the path of true love didn't run wholly smoothly, as Joyce's rather racy diaries, discovered after her death, revealed. Various other young men appear and disappear from page to page. Indeed, it's quite hard to reconcile my modest, loving old grandma baking wonderful cakes tending her garden with the sparky, dark-haired beauty of her younger pictures, who leaps off the page of the diaries. In 1936, Joyce went on a school trip to Germany. She and her colleagues stayed in a youth hostel where a group of Hitler youth were also staying. Among the young men was a chap called Gunther, to whom Joyce appears to have taken quite a shine. During the course of the trip, Joyce and her school party attended a Nazi party rally at which Hitler spoke. Joyce spoke very good German and would later say she found him compelling, even mesmerising, even if the subject matter of his speech was repellent. By the way, I should point out that Joyce was a staunch and lifelong liberal. When Joyce returned home, she and Gunther became pen pals, a correspondence which lasted until the start of the war. Aubrey, however, had never been far from Joyce's thoughts, and they married early in the war. Aubrey served in the Northumberland Hussars, landing on Gold Beach early in the morning on D-Day in his M10 tank destroyer. He claimed that this gave him the hideous sounding ailment tank driver's arse, a rare detail of his wartime service which I did not want to find out any more about. He saw action in Market Garden and then across Europe to the Baltic, during which time he also drove on at least one occasion for General Montgomery, whom he adored, and liberated an array of SS and Wehrmacht regalia as souvenirs. Aubrey was a lifelong rebel, the archetype of the citizen soldier and the opposite of a natural warrior. In retirement, he dealt with his experiences by talking about them. I owe my affliction to Saturday afternoons listening, as he stared into space and talked about his wartime career, which he hated, but was the formative and central experience of his life. It was a duty he did to the best of his ability, and then bottled up inside, until the end of a hugely pressured working life gave him the mental space to process it. Aubrey returned home in early 1946, and he and Joyce settled down with their growing family. In 1947, a letter arrived at Joyce's parents' From Germany. It was from Gunther. Joyce's mother agonized for days before handing the letter over. It emerged that Gunther had served in the Wehrmacht and had now settled down in Wuppertal, married a woman called Margot, and was working as an English teacher. What started as a holiday romance became a lifelong friendship. Aubrey was initially quite suspicious of Gunther on the grounds that he was a former arriving in love, a German army veteran, and worse, An ex-officer. But once he'd established that Gunter had served on the Eastern rather than Western Front, they became fast friends. Joyce and Gunter's friendship would last their whole long lives. They last met with their families at Aubrey and Joyce's Diamond Wedding in 2000. Aubrey died in 2011 at the age of 91. And Joyce, her soulmate gone, followed him just over a year later, just before her 93rd birthday. Margot and Gunther also made it into their 90s and their children are all still friends to this day. I've attached a few pictures, one of Aubrey displaying his total and I suspect deliberate inability to wear a beret properly, one of Joyce as a young woman. It's a bit battered because this is the photo Aubrey carried with him from Gold Beach to the Baltic. And the last of Joyce and Gunther together. I took it at the Diamond Wedding Celebrations. Gunter appears not to have got the joke, but Joyce is roaring with laughter, giving us a glimpse of the vivacious young woman she'd once been. All the best, Rob Dolby.
1: This story is from Charles Todd. Hi, James and Al. I thoroughly enjoy the podcast. I wish to share with you the story of my great-great-uncle, Corporal Thomas Waters. Born and raised in South Yorkshire, he worked as a coal miner before joining the King's Own Yorkshire Light Infantry in July 1935. He was posted to Gibraltar in February 1936 and remained there until December 1936 when his unit was moved to India. When war broke out, Waters was stationed in Burma and in May 1941 he was transferred to the Special Forces and joined the Bush Warfare School at Mayamo. His commander was Major Mad Mike Calvert, who as a brigadier would later become the leader of the Chimdits. In 1942, the Japanese invaded Burma and the British were forced to fall back into India. Some members of the Bush Warfare School, including Waters, moved into Yunnan, China, where they continued to support the guerrillas and engage in special operations against the Japanese. He went back to India in October 1942, and the following April, he returned to Britain where he was transferred to the Royal Court of Signals as a sergeant, but at his own request he was reduced in rank to corporal. He qualified as a wireless and line operator and was posted to the 6th Airborne Divisional Signals. Waters was attached to the 5th Parachute Brigade during the invasion of Normandy, and for his actions on D-Day at Pegasus Bridge, he was awarded the Military Medal. This is the report on the day's events by Captain Guy Radmore, the Brigade Signals Officer. At about 1300 hours on D-Day, we heard the sound of Lord Lovett's piper. In the meantime, my party had started to lay the line from brigade headquarters across two bridges. They had all been wounded from machine gun fire from the Chateau de Benouville to the southwest of the Canal Bridge. Corporal Tom Waters, who, with his wireless detachment, was in reserve, on his own initiative threw three smoke grenades and got covering fire from one of our Bren guns. He proceeded to rescue the wounded before, under intense enemy fire, taking the line across the bridges to the 7th Parachute Battalion, which was resisting powerful counter-attacks in port He then spent all day maintaining it. His military medal citation reads, For conspicuous gallantry and coolness under enemy fire and devotion to duty during airborne operations in the Romville area on the 6th-7th of June 1944. On the 6th of June, Corporal Waters volunteered to bring in a wounded comrade from an exposed position. In the face of accurate enemy sniping, which had already caused casualties, he coolly went forward and brought in the wounded man. He then continued his duty of laying a signal line along an exposed route under constant enemy sniping and small arms fire. When this line was cut by enemy fire, Corporal Waters again went out under fire and repaired it. On several occasions this NCO went out voluntarily and repaired communications in full view of the enemy. By his gallantry and complete disregard of personal danger, Corporal Waters maintained communications between brigade headquarters and a battalion holding a vital position. Having survived Normandy, Waters was seriously injured during a training accident prior to Operation Market Garden. A sergeant had pulled a pin from a live grenade, and realising the danger, Waters immediately threw a waste paper basket over it in an attempt to dampen the explosion. He was caught in the subsequent blast and lost his right eye, sustained damage to his right wrist and also suffered a serious head wound, which necessitated a metal plate being inserted into his skull. He returned to the UK in September 1944, and was discharged from military service on the 10th of May 1945, with exemplary character, after nine years and 312 days' service as a regular soldier. Thomas Waters was determined to carry on with his life, and went to great lengths to find a job, eventually becoming a postman. He was tragically killed while on his bicycle during a postal round in September 1955. He had fallen off his bicycle and hit his head on the pavement where his metal plate was located. His actions on D-Day are immortalised in the evocative painting Go To It by Peter Archer. I have attached a picture of the painting. Thank you very much for taking the time to read this. Best wishes, Charles.
0: Hello there, Al Murray here. Right, a few pieces of we have ways of making you talk news to pass on before we return to family stories. We will be doing a special week of podcasts from Monday, December the 6th, marking the 80th anniversary of one of the biggest weeks of the war. Think Pearl Harbour, think Soviet counterattacks on the Eastern Front, think Operation Crusader in the Western Desert. James and I will be talking to a series of experts and special guest historians to discuss this titanic week of the Second World War. Then, over the Christmas period, we plan to release a daily podcast offering a sample of our favourite Second World War fiction. James and I have chosen six novels each and we'll be reading extracts from Christmas morning until January the 5th. Hopefully, this will give you an insight into the best fiction out there. You may even want to buy a book or two for the new year. And on our members' site... Over on Patreon, we'll be releasing a new audiobook in December. It's called A Pair of Silver Wings by some fella named James Holland. My daughter Willow Murray has read this one and she's read it beautifully. It's a cracking book. And finally, if you're interested in hooking up with other Second World War enthusiasts in your area, our Members Club now has 15 regional groups which meet for a drink and a good old war, war, jaw, jaw. They're the length and breadth of the UK, and there's even one in North America. Do get involved with that if you'd like to explore the social side of the pod. Right, back to family stories. Next up is this story from Callum MacLeod. Hi, James and Al. I'm originally from Glasgow, but live in Melbourne, Australia. My family on my father's side are from Skye and we've a long history of service in the Merchant Navy that stretches through to myself and my brother. My father's family were from the village of Kilmuir in Skye, a place that is remote even now, well off the tourist trail, so I can only imagine how inaccessible it was back at the start of the war. My father wasn't one to speak about the past much and I regret not asking him more about our family history. This story is put together from research, memory and scraps of stories I remember hearing through the years. My father's sister, Mary Lamont, had three sons, Charles, Murdo and James. Charles died due to illness at the age of eight in 1939. Living in such a remote place with no access to medical care, his death certificate records no cause of death, only that he wasn't attended by a doctor a situation not uncommon at that time in the Western Isles. Murdo Lamont served in the Merchant Navy on the SS Monarch, a small cargo steamer of 824 tonnes. On the 9th of June 1940, en route from Cardiff to Falmouth, she was torpedoed by U-52. All 12 hands on board were lost, including my cousin Murdo, who was 19 at the time of his death. The third brother, James, was a rifleman in the Cameronians. He was killed on the 6th of August 1944, also aged 19, in Normandy, and is buried in the Bruay War Cemetery. My Aunt Mary had no other children. All three sons were lost to her during those five years. I'm the father of two sons, and the thought of losing one of them is unimaginable. Despite this tragedy, Mary survived the grief to live into her 70s, eventually passing in 1971, over 30 years after the death of her children. I'm sorry that the details of this story are sparse, but I've been inspired by the podcast to look back in my family's history and hopefully I'll discover more detail as I dig deeper. Yours, Cal McLeod, Melbourne, Australia.
1: We move from Australia to South Africa for our next story. This one comes from Robin Mousley. Dear James and Al, firstly thanks for the podcast. I was delighted when I found it halfway through last year. I've since devoured every episode and look forward eagerly to every week's sessions with the pair of you. My father-in-law, Clyde Allenby Ranger, yes he was named after the general, volunteered in September 1940 because, as he put it, everyone was doing it. He served a total of five years and 58 days with the South African army. He fought in North Africa with the 1st South African Division from December 1941 to December 1942, when he was shipped back to South Africa to do a two-year course to qualify as a signals technician. In 1945, he was shipped to Italy, where he saw the rest of the war out, serving with the 6th South African Armoured Division, working on tank radios. He had a fund of stories about his service, but as with so many other veterans, said that he seemed to have forgotten all except the funny ones. He described being present during the Gazala Gallop when the 8th Army retreated headlong from the Gazala line to Alamein. The vehicles were driving at night without lights and he and his mates took turns sitting on the bonnet of their truck to warn the driver if they were getting too close to the next truck. He was posted to an anti-aircraft unit as a signaller and described being under bombing attacks from the Luftwaffe. One of his favourite stories involved a friend who'd just been issued a new shirt by the quartermaster when an attack came in. He was running towards the slit trench when he tripped and fell into a shallow depression. A bomb exploded behind him. Fortunately, the depression was just enough to protect him. But a few minutes later, he went back to the quartermaster to ask for another shirt. The QM wasn't amused. He had a new shirt already. What did he need another new one for? He turned round to show the back of his new shirt was missing. The blast had been so close that the back of the shirt had billowed up and been shredded. Clyde hated the flies in North Africa. And told us how he and his buddy used to get their food and run to their little signals truck, get beneath mosquito netting and kill the flies before eating. He reckoned that some men literally went mad because of the flies. He was present at the Battle of El Alamein and described how the entire horizon lit up when the artillery barrel started. Later in the war in Italy, he remembered looking through the fence at a U.S. canteen where the soldiers were being served roost chicken and ice cream, whereas all they had were nasty British rations. All in all, he said. His army service was the highlight of his life. This despite his general disregard from the army bull and some of his officers. Cheers from Cape Town, Robin Mowsley.
0: Our next family story comes from Philip Harrield. My grandfather... Ronald Philip Hart was born in 1920, and at the age of 17 joined the Royal Air Force and trained as a mechanic fitter. He was assigned to 263 Squadron, equipped with Gloucester gladiators, an obsolete biplane even at the beginning of the war. In 1940, the squadron was sent as part of the unsuccessful defence of Norway. When the Germans pushed the British out, most of the squadron and 10 serviceable gladiators were evacuated aboard the aircraft carrier HMS Glorious heading for Scapa Flow, in the company of HMS Acasta and HMS Ardent. On the 8th of June, all three ships were sunk by the Gneisenau and Scharnhorst and there were very few survivors. My grandfather was posted missing in action and thought to have been killed during the sinking. But he wasn't. It wasn't known until later That he was actually part of the rear party that had remained behind to destroy anything that couldn't be returned to the UK. Some of the unserviceable gladiators were burnt and then thrown into the fjord. My grandfather along with the rest of the rear party was smuggled out of Norway in fishing boats hiding under the fish if German ships were spotted. The fishermen could only go out a short distance but eventually met ships bringing goods into the British Isles and the men were transferred. My grandfather landed in Scotland and then travelled by train to London, where the family lived, bringing with him a crate of oranges and still smelling of fish. On arrival at my grandmother's house, she promptly fainted as she didn't know he was alive and had assumed he'd been killed in the sinking of HMS Glorious. The oranges were given to the local children in Kilburn, who did not know what to do with them, having not seen one before. In 1942, my grandfather was seconded to British Overseas Air Corporation, BOAC, and issued a passport, not a usual thing for a serviceman. He travelled extensively, and the stamps in his passport show some of the places he went to, including South Africa, Eritrea, Sudan, Mozambique, Egypt and Palestine. Presumably, this was to repair BOAC aircraft, which included servicing flying boats on the Nile. At the RAF Museum in Hendon, there are the remains of one of the gladiators which were thrown into the fjords and later recovered. Whenever we visited the museum as children, my sister and I would refer to this sad old wreck as Grandad's Plane. Keep up the good work keeping this history alive. Kindest regards, Philip Harried. That's it for this week. If you've got a family story you'd like to be considered for the show, please email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com. Or leave it on the member site under the Family Stories tab. A reminder, that's patreon.com slash wehaveways. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.